Welcome to Not Fair, the podcast where we call out the inequalities, obstacles, or just plain inconveniences that stand in our way. I'm your host, Zoe Mitchell. Every year, I go to the doctors for my primary care checkup, which is covered in the health insurance plan that I am lucky enough to have. This year, though, things went differently. A month after my routine check-in, I received a bill for my visit, over $300 for services that I had thought were covered. I am a student and don't make a whole lot of money right now, so getting a bill like this out of the blue is not something I can just pay right away. I am lucky though and privileged enough to have a family that will argue with insurance companies about charges with me and if I were in a tight enough spot, they would lend me the money. But this really did open my eyes. It's one thing to be a journalist reporting about the broken healthcare system, but now it was hitting home. What do people do if they do not have insurance and have to pay for services out of pocket? Or what about those times when insurance doesn't cover everything? Even treatments or tests that could save a life? Today, we have three stories of people who have come up against unfair obstacles in the American healthcare system. Reporter Eve Zuckoff brings us our first. It was very sunny, very energetic and cheerful. Yeah, make your way down now if you want to talk to us about why you're here. We'd love to hear from you. So. Yeah, and it was really cute. Like Everyone had their own little t-shirts, a lot of pink, which I love. There were balloons, there were places to take pictures, and that was really nice to see people taking pictures with their teams, and like a lot of the time it was like one person who had like a survivor sash in the middle. Athena Hansaridis is a petite brunette with a big smile, and she's a senior at Boston University. Athena's surrounded by people with pom-poms and bullhorns and sashes that mark survivors. They're marching along the Charles River, and their goal is to raise money for breast cancer research. So I walked today because I have a really high risk of getting breast cancer, like 50 to 70 percent. Athena is one of 0.3 percent of the American population with that high a likelihood of getting breast cancer. The average woman has only a 12 percent chance. And she thinks about this a lot, though she's only 21 years old. Last year, Athena took a blood test that changed her entire life. Her story starts with one out-of-control gene. We've been discussing the BRCA mutation. BRCA1. BRCA. The BRCA gene mutation. BRCA mutation. BRCA. BRCA1. I'm Eve Zuckoff, and this is not fair. It's just a mutation in gene that I'm pretty sure is in your breasts and your ovaries that doesn't respond to when your bodies like stop producing cells because that's how cancer uh, tumors are formed. Uh, that's a very reasonable way of thinking about it. That's Dr. Kevin Hughes, a breast surgeon at Mass General Hospital and the co-director of the Avon Comprehensive Breast Evaluation Center. He's a very important man, so we spoke in an Uber from Mass General to Dana-Farber Cancer Center. So genes are what uh, tell our cells what to do. Uh, our genes are present in every cell of our body, but different genes are turned on in different parts of the body or turned off in different parts of the body. And the BRCA gene plays a particularly important role. When it works properly, it tells the breasts and ovaries not to overproduce cells. 
But it's not that simple because we actually have two copies of the BRCA gene and we expect them both to work. They're respectively known as BRCA1 and BRCA2. In most people, both copies work properly. For those born with a mutation, they only have one copy that works properly. That copy is enough to prevent cancer in most cases. Most, not all. But when that cell loses that good copy, then that cell goes on to grow faster. And faster and faster, producing more and more cells. And then those cells will group together in a mass and form a tumor. Ultimately, women who have a mutation in BRCA1 have a 55 to 65% chance of getting breast cancer, and they have a 39% chance of developing ovarian cancer. The chances for a woman with a mutation on the BRCA2 gene are a little lower, but they're very similar. It's also important to note here that some ethnic groups are significantly more affected than others. One in 40 Ashkenazi Jews has a BRCA mutation. In the average population, the numbers look more like 1 in 400 to 1 in 800. Athena isn't an Ashkenazi Jew, so she didn't know any of this about BRCA until her aunt Tanya, her father's sister, was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2013. And when that happened, her doctors told her that she had the BRCA mutation all along. Tanya's family asked me not to use her last name. What I can tell you is that Tanya was just 34 years old at the time, and she had a three-year-old and a two-month-old. They were infants. Right after she had a baby, she got breast cancer. It was triple negative, which means it's just like insanely hard to treat. In fact, people with triple negative breast cancer don't have an estrogen receptor, a progesterone receptor, or a human epidermal growth factor receptor. And the most successful treatments for breast cancer target these three receptors. So Tanya's doctors were left with fewer options, and the cancer itself was particularly aggressive. Still, doctors caught it early, so she got chemotherapy, and after a few months, she went into remission. But because she had the BRCA mutation, her doctors advised her to get a double mastectomy. But she had just been through so much so they told her she could wait a year before actually getting the procedure done. Before Tanya could get her double mastectomy, the cancer came back and it metastasized. It attacked Tanya's brain and her lymph nodes quickly. Then January 1st, 2016, she was sitting at home with her husband, John. She was in a wheelchair and very sick, but present celebrating the new year. She just was sitting there very peacefully and she just stopped breathing. And like, no one was prepared for it. Like to the point where like, he put her on the floor and did CPR. It was not like, oh, and now she's not in pain. It was very much like, no, 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 no. We've got to keep this going. When Tanya passed, she had two young children and she was only 37. It was very unexpected and had she known earlier, she could have taken some type of preventative measures and like maybe be here today. While Tanya was sick, seven other people 
in Athena's family tested positive for the BRCA mutation. Three of them were diagnosed with breast cancer. So just a week after Tanya died, Athena and her sister Sophia decided they needed to know if they had the BRCA mutation too. And next time, we'll take a deep look into the process Athena and many other women face when trying to actually get tested. But for now, what you need to know is that six weeks after their test, in March of 2016, they got their results. Sophia's came back negative. Athena's were positive. That night, I was crying. I was so upset about it because it's just like, what are you going to do? Like, I made the mistake of Googling what it really means, and it was just like, that's literally like a quarter. Like, you flip a quarter, heads or tails, and like, it's either I have cancer or I don't. Athena started looking at herself differently. She felt betrayed by her own body, and she couldn't even really talk to her sister about it. So I was really happy that she didn't have it. But also, I was jealous in that, like, this is not something she's going to have to deal with. And I generally get more sick than my sister. Like, I have a lot of, like, stomach issues, and she's just never had that. So I was like, oh, of course, like, you don't have it. Like, you never have anything. And before she got tested, Athena had already decided what she would do if she had the mutation. So when she turns 26 in five years from now, she plans to have both her breasts removed because she says it's not worth the risk of waiting, like Tanya did. At 26, her health insurance will cover the double mastectomy, and when she's 35, or after she has children, she'll have her ovaries removed. I just want to get it done so that it's done with, and I don't have to worry about it. My chances are lower, and I can go through life not having that burden over me of like, oh, now that you're... 35, you just went up 10% of how likely it is that you're going to get this, and then 40, and then 50, and like 40, 50, 60 are like the years that it's like most likely, and like that's when I hope to have had children, and like maybe they'll be in college, and like I'll be able to be doing all these awesome things. That's not something I need looming. But these thoughts do loom. At this point, she was 21, spending most of her days wondering about how much longer she would have with the body she knew. By 26, she will have lost a part of herself. I was just like, I don't want to look at them. Like, I can't even get used to you now because I don't want to get attached to them. Like, I like the way I look and I'm going to have to have that taken from me. And then I was like, I want a new body. But eventually, Athena started to change the story she told herself about her body and the sum of all its parts. She knows there's still a long road ahead, but she's come to realize that the test has given her something her Aunt Tanya didn't have. Control. I like kept saying to my mom, if Tanya had gotten tested, she would have rather have gotten her breasts removed at 20 than not be here to see her children grow up. Now she's focusing on what she can control, like leading a team of 41 people and raising almost $1,700 in one morning for breast cancer research. Women have died in my family from breast cancer and I felt helpless a lot of the time thinking about it. So this was like a nice way to empower myself and just like a way to be like, 
I care and I recognize that this is a struggle that we all share and like let's try to do something about it. Since 1993, more than 13 million walkers in the U.S. have helped raise more than $810 million to help save lives from breast cancer. That's a lot of walkers and that's a lot of dollars. I want to remind you that our goal today is to raise an additional $2.1 million in the fight to end breast cancer. Special thanks to Athena Hanzaridis for sharing her story, and Dr. Kevin Hughes for contributing to this episode. I'm Eve Zuckoff. Thanks for listening. The drug companies tell us, unless we can get very high prices, we won't be able to innovate, and everybody will die. So their approach seems to be, give us all your money or we'll kill you. Welcome back. I'm Eve Zucca, and this is Not Fair. In the first episode, we met Athena Hanzaridis, who tested positive for the BRCA mutation that gives her a 55 to 65 percent chance of getting breast cancer, among other things. And if you haven't heard that episode, I suggest you pause right here, go back, and listen. But today we're going to switch gears and try to understand the BRCA story with a wider lens. And we'll start with one strange moment that happened between Athena and her nurse. The nurse was kind of weird just because I told her my family history, which I think is pretty extensive. And she was like, oh, well, I don't know. Like, it's not on your mom's side. And I was like, that doesn't really matter because it's not a gender-specific gene. It was just weird that she was like, it's not going to be covered. And I was like, who else needs to pass that it's going to be covered? Does my mom need to die? Like, That didn't sit well with me either. So I set out to understand what her nurse meant. How could someone like Athena, with a clear risk, be left with a bill for thousands of dollars to cover a genetic test that might save her life? I needed to find someone who could answer that. My name is Alan Sager, and I'm a professor of health law, policy, and management at the Boston University School of Public Health. I spent the morning with Alan Sager, and within a minute and 24 seconds of our interview, he brought up the Utah-based company Myriad Genetics. Myriad, uh, the company that developed the BRCA testing in the United States, apparently was charging around $4,000 per test for many years. It was 15 years, to be exact. And Myriad actually owned a patent on breast cancer genes. That was a real thing you could do. And it meant that no other company could perform the tests that would detect the BRCA mutation. That also meant Myriad could price the test however they wanted. We see this problem over and over again in healthcare, especially on the prescription drug side, where one company has a patent on a certain new med like the one that fights hepatitis C, where the original price was around $84,000 for a course of treatment. We see new competition coming in, and the price of the latest medication is now in the $20,000 per course of treatment area. And the drug company's explanation? The drug companies tell us, unless we can get very high prices, we won't be able to innovate, and everybody will die. 
Competition between drug companies is what made things like the hep C treatment more affordable. And the same principle applies with the genetics company. So with patents, competition is eliminated and the price stays exorbitant. That said, I did not understand how patents worked when I first started this story. So here is a 20 second history. In 1790, the U.S. Patent Act says you have the right to own your own invention, like Spanx or the seatbelt. In 1911, the chemical adrenaline is isolated and patented, and the argument became anything outside the body is fair game. Then, as science and technology opened up, so did the law. By 1990, the U.S. Patent Office started letting companies claim entire DNA sequences, and within a year, the first human gene was patented. Today, at least 41% of genes in the human genome are patented. Practically, that means once your blood is drawn, almost half of all your genetic material can only be tested by the patent holder. But in 2013, patients' rights groups and civil libertarians were concerned about the implications for women who couldn't afford Myriad's genetic tests. That year, they sued Myriad arguing the company was holding diagnostic care and access to information hostage from high-risk patients. And the case went all the way to the Supreme Court. There, Myriad argued patents create financial incentives for medical innovation. Patents are the reason the x-ray machine was invented, and it was an investment that has saved countless lives. Companies in general say the ability to claim a patent on a discovery, whether it's a gene or a better mousetrap, encourages them to take risks that they otherwise might not take. The promise of gaining an exclusive right to charge for their discovery is what companies say helps patients, consumers, and people with mouse problems alike. The central question in this case was, can products of nature, like genes, be treated the same as man-made inventions? And if they can be, does that mean companies can keep claiming parts of the human genome? The case was heard, and ultimately... Uh, the Supreme Court invalidated their patent and allowed for competition from other companies. The ruling was a victory for patients, with the big takeaway being genes are no longer patentable, and other biotech companies can create and sell their own BRCA tests, which in practice almost immediately drove down the price. And that brings us to today. While the price dropped lower, it still wasn't cheap. And insurance companies don't want to foot the bill for every woman who says she wants to get tested. So instead, they've come up with a system that determines who they should and shouldn't cover. What do we know as the public, or what do you know, about the algorithms or the people who are making decisions about who should get covered for genetic testing and who shouldn't? Um, I don't know about the algorithm they use or the people who do this. And that's the thing. No one knows. Not an expert in health, law, and policy. Not women who need to know if they'll be covered. No one. No one except insurance companies. All we know is that somewhere, someone or something at an insurance company is considering factors like whether or not someone in your family has already been identified as having the BRCA mutation, or if you're an Ashkenazi Jew, that helps, 
or how young members of your family have died of cancer. They look at that. And then if insurance accepts your reasoning, you basically pay your normal copay. But if it rejects you, you have to pay hundreds or even thousands of dollars out of pocket for a genetic test. The lower price may mean that some insurance companies are more willing to pay to offer some coverage, but at the same time they may fear that more and more people will seek genetic testing. And if you have to pay a few hundred dollars for dozens or hundreds of thousands of people, it looks like a lot of money to them. So if one insurance company is more generous in how it treats coverage for BRCA testing, more and more women who seek that testing will sign up with that insurance company, which will then see lower profits and may be impelled either to raise its premiums or reduce how generously it covers BRCA testing. To get a more balanced picture, though, I reached out to America's Health Insurance Plans, AHIP. It's a trade association that represents companies that provide coverage for healthcare. And I talked to the director of communications, Katherine Donaldson. She told me insurance companies make decisions about coverage on a case-by-case basis. Ultimately, it's going to depend on the insurer itself and the plan and the individual. It's not as simple as saying, here's the exact algorithm. So it's difficult to say why one person may qualify for it versus another without knowing more about their genetic history, their health history, and, you know, if they've had cancer beforehand. I mean, there's just a lot of different factors at play. This didn't tell me much. So here's what else I found. Insurance companies make a lot of people mad when they raise premiums. So instead, they take something like genetic testing and they make decisions. They agree to pay for some women and they reject others. The women who are rejected then have to decide whether or not they can pay that $300 to $5,000. And some of those women will decide, that's my rent, that's my groceries, that's too expensive. And they'll forego the test completely. So if a patient does not have genetic testing, uh, she will not be screened. That's Dr. Kevin Hughes, a breast surgeon at Mass General Hospital and the co-director of the Avon Comprehensive Breast Evaluation Center. She will possibly present with a large advanced breast cancer because no one was screening her. And because she was young, when she felt a breast lump, uh, she was told it was nothing. Again, inappropriate, but, but it happens. So the danger is when patients do not have this testing, they are not screened in the way they should be screened. They don't have the prophylactic surgery that can prevent cancer, such as removing the ovaries. Uh, They come in with larger advanced cancers. They often die of those cancers. For many women, testing is the key to preventing that problem. And genetic testing for breast cancer has been around since 1990. 27 years later, Shockingly few women are getting genetic testing. If you look at the indications for genetic testing, probably probably about 10 to 15 million women need breast cancer genetic testing alone. So huge numbers of patients need these tests done, uh, and we have not been keeping up with the demand. We currently have had a system in place where patients require extensive counseling before they are tested and that counseling uh, can be a deterrent because there aren't enough counselors to do the counseling where there aren't counselors in a given area. 
In a recent study, 81% of high-risk breast cancer patients said they wanted genetic testing. 51% actually got it. When asked why they didn't get tested, one in seven said the test was too expensive. The majority of the others said their doctors didn't even mention that it was an option. In the end, Athena's testing was covered. And many more women are tested for the BRCA mutation than there used to be. The system still is not perfect. But there is another piece of good news. Cancer. A test for the BRCA1 and BRCA2 gene mutations launches today from the company Colored Adrian. Now, women who think they need testing, but whose insurance companies disagree, have a brand new option. In recent months, a company called Color announced a $150 take-home genetic test. And if knowledge is power, then accessibility is the key to the kingdom. At least, it's a step towards a little more fair. Special thanks to Athena Hanzaridis for sharing her story, and Dr. Kevin Hughes, Alan Sager, and Katherine Donaldson for their time and expertise. I'm Eve Zuckoff. Thanks for listening. In America and in the halls of Congress, there is so much talk and debate about health insurance, who should provide it and who deserves it. But for convoluted historical reasons, our teeth are not considered part of the body that is covered by health insurance. Some of us are lucky enough to have dental insurance, but reporter Adrian Thomas tells us that visiting the dentist is not an affordable option for many of us. Not many of us enjoy going to the dentist. You get your teeth clean, the hygienist or dentist admonishes you for not flossing that one molar enough, your insurance is billed and you're on your way. But what's under the radar about dental care is if you don't have private insurance, then basic dental care is extremely difficult to get. My name is Arthur Sullivan. I'm 54 years old. I'm originally from uh, Dorchester, Mass. Arthur Sullivan is homeless. He's visiting the Boston Healthcare for the Homeless Program Dental Clinic today in Boston South End to get some broken teeth checked out. He hasn't been to a dentist since 2001. I had uh, some tooth pain. I had a couple of broken teeth, and um, the last time I was at the doctors, they were telling me that I would probably need the remaining of my bottom, bottom teeth taken out. So I had an opportunity to today. I uh, called for a same-day appointment, which luckily I received. And fortunately for me, with the experts here at this hospital, um, told me that I did not need all my teeth removed and I would get by with a partial plate. So the teeth that I have, I will be able to keep. Arthur Sullivan is a patient covered by MassHealth, the Massachusetts Medicaid program. The Boston Healthcare for the Homeless only accepts this type of insurance from patients, which not many private dentists around the country accept. In fact, fewer than half the nation's 150,000 dentists participate in Medicaid. Write down it out for about 30 minutes, and then if you need to change it out because it gets bloody, just oh, yeah. go ahead and do that. Um, you have extra ones right in here. Oh, awesome. Dr. Alan Filzer is in charge of the dental program at Boston Healthcare for the Homeless. 
We provide a number of treatments for our patients. We provide preventative services. We provide um, uh, restorative services. We provide uh, prosthetic services. And we also provide uh, uh, services of removing uh, necessary teeth for patients. Filzer says his clinic receives no money from patients, only from Medicaid, and that some procedures not covered by Medicaid he'll do anyway. Every patient that receives a, uh, uh, a prophylaxis and cleaning here, we apply topical fluoride, which has been proven to help uh, reduce the amount of decay and breakdown that occurs in not only children but adults. And it is not covered by Medicaid. We do that for every single patient. Dr. Filzer believes there needs to be more of a convergence between overall health care and dental care. Really integrating medicine and dentistry uh, where uh, we have physicians helping to stress the importance of dental care instead of having two separate entities. Uh, we in dentistry feel that oral health care is part of overall uh, systemic care for patients. This combining of dental care into mainstream health care is something health journalist Mary Otto has made her life's work. She began writing about oral health at the Washington Post and is the author of Teeth, the story of beauty, inequality, and the struggle for oral health in America. Otto says lack of insurance is a main reason dentists refuse to treat some patients. They are not required to uh, accept Medicaid patients, and dentists often complain that Medicaid doesn't pay them enough to cover their costs. Mm -hmm. Most of dentists, dental care in this country is provided through the private practice system. Uh, and dentists, you know, they're health care providers, but they also consider themselves small businessmen and women. Otto believes that regulation should change to make care more accessible. Over a million people a year go to emergency rooms with toothaches and other kinds of problems that could have been simply treated or prevented in a dental office. These visits cost the system well over a billion dollars a year, so there's this growing awareness that there, is a, there, there needs to be more ways for people to get routine, timely care than are, than are available now. Massachusetts happens to be one of the states that is spearheading this initiative to expand basic dental care. Senator Harriet Chandler is the Massachusetts Senate Majority Leader and has introduced a bill at the State House that would essentially create a new dental health care position called a dental therapist. This bill, Senate Bill 1169, would allow these dental therapists to leave their offices to bring basic dental services to individuals and communities that have trouble accessing quality dental care. This bill is a long time in the making for Senator Chandler. I've been involved in this for four or five years, and what got me started originally was many years ago, we did a study of uh, what our dental programs were like in Massachusetts. What was the state of oral health in Massachusetts? And I, I was shocked to find out that it was kind of akin to a third world country. Senator Chandler has made it a priority to improve dental care in Massachusetts. These dental hygienists will effectively help the problem of access because they will be able to travel to patients to perform basic teeth maintenance. The whole point is that they would be able to go where the patient is rather than wait for the patient to come to the dental office. 
if we waited for the patient to come to the dental office, we'd continue to have the problem we're having now. They don't get there, and there's this gap. As the debate continues amongst the dental community and lawmakers, people like Arthur Sullivan are essentially limited to Medicaid-friendly dental health care providers, such as the Boston Health Care for the Homeless, which are few and far between. The tender care that they give here is, is just outstanding under, under all the circumstances that they face with the homeless, with all the different um, mental illness, um, drug addiction, and so forth. Um, uh, there's a lot of verbal abuse that the, uh, the patients put on staff and put them under pressure, and um, they handle it so well, it, it's, just, um, it is, it's, it's just unbelievable. For WTBU and the Boston University News Service, I'm Adrian Thomas in Boston South End. Finally, a story from reporter Megan Libby on the stigma surrounding mental health and one student's mission to end the silence about it. Just this year, at age 21, and before she even received her college diploma, Emma Soslowski released her Nashville-recorded first 10-track album. But music is much more than a passion for Soslowski. Music is a way to share her struggle with mental illness. Someone's willing, yeah, I'll bring up that I've self-harmed before. I'll bring up that I was having suicidal thoughts and really wanted to die. And I had suicidal thoughts but never really made any plans. It was just overwhelming feeling of dread and really not wanting to be here. Sislowski says she has had anxiety for as long as she can remember and was diagnosed with depression the summer before she started college. Things got worse in her freshman year. The worries became harder to identify as worries, and they started to become truths. Things that I would worry about that I used to be able to say, like, oh, that's all in my head. I started to not be able to do that anymore. Everything felt grayscale, like black and white. It was such an isolating feeling. It was like discovering a new emotion that I had never felt before. I was sleeping through class a lot because, like, depression's exhausting. And it was always, oh, Emma, why'd you sleep through class? Instead of, oh, Emma, what's wrong? Sislowski found support through a college a cappella group at Boston University and began to confide in friends who she realized were experiencing similar emotions. The relationships she's formed at college, she says, have helped her immensely. One night, I was really upset and opted to not go to rehearsal because I just couldn't. It's weird. Of course, I could have gotten up and gone, but just like a person with a broken leg could drag themselves across <laughs> the hall. Someone with depression could drag themselves, but it hurts, so you don't. And my friend brought me a card to my room after rehearsal. She said, I have no idea what's happening right now, but I know you're going to get through it. To have people define what I was going through as something I was going through was so validating. One of the ways that colleges are addressing mental health on campus is to recruit the help of other students to educate their peers about alcohol use, drugs, sex, and general wellness. Chelsea Federley participated in one of these programs at Roger Williams University in Rhode Island. I became involved with the health and wellness education program at Roger Williams in my sophomore year, and it's a small group, but there's only 10 of us. Through a technique called brief motivational interviewing, federally and other health and wellness educators would ask open-ended questions to their student peers to discuss mental and physical health. The conversation is supposed to be 80% the person you're talking with is talking and 20% the interviewer is talking. We would encourage study breaks and eating healthy and getting sleep. Things that just make your body function better on a day-to-day -day basis so that you feel better. 
These conversations were helpful for Federley, who has struggled with her own anxiety. She was able to recognize signs of mental illness in others and have difficult conversations with her friends about depression. I had a friend who in college really struggled with depression and anxiety on top of an eating disorder. Trying to be the support person for her, I tried to use these techniques and and talking to her and working through what she was feeling. I've used that with friends to work through any difficult situation and found it really useful. This way you're kind of just saying, well, what do you think you should do? Why do you think you should do that? Why wouldn't you do this instead? And just trying to get them to think through it without giving them any straightforward answers. According to both Seslowski and Federley, these peer-to-peer conversations are incredibly important to someone who is depressed, but not all students are equipped to recognize depression and may not feel comfortable having conversations about mental health. We can tell when someone's helping us but not fully believing what we've got is bad. Before you can help anyone, you really need to train yourself to take anxiety and depression and any other mental illness seriously because until you do, your help is going to be insincere and worthless. Federally offered advice for those interested in learning more about supporting friends who may be struggling. I think the internet can be a really good resource. Or you can call a suicide hotline and say, hey, I'm worried about my friend or I have a question. And now they even have text things. So you can text somebody. You don't even have to call them. According to Seslowski, simply legitimizing without negating a friend's feelings can be incredibly helpful, especially if this legitimization comes from personal experience. You can feel your anxiety and depression. It lives in your stomach, it lives in your heart, in your head, and people that acknowledge that and have made it out on the other side, especially people you respect and love and admire, that's the best. always be a worry but I'm also so many other things like an awesome magical prism of experience a lot of the work is on us to be our own advocate if you're in a good headspace reach out to people you think need help post something on Facebook that says I'm here here's what I gone through it sucks digging into your darkness to try to find light for someone else but you gotta people need those support systems and communities we just gotta legitimize mental illnesses. Illness is in the name. We gotta start treating it like one and giving it the attention it needs. It really hurts people, but also people with anxiety and depression can be superheroes and role models. I know some of my biggest role models have struggled with anxiety and depression, and I'd like to think I could be someone's role model. From Boston University News Service, this is Megan Libby in Boston. You've been listening to Not Fair, the podcast. Join us next time for a look at people struggling to right a wrong at their work. I've been your host, Zoe Mitchell.